How did Jeff Bezos realize you could sell anything on the internet? Why did Bill Gates create Control-Alt-Delete? How did synchronized swimming prepare Christine Lagarde for international politics? What made Bob Iger bet big on Marvel? And what inspired Diane von Furstenberg to create the wrap dress? On The David Rubenstein Show, peer-to-peer conversations, I uncover the untold stories of the world's most successful leaders. Listen now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to For the Ages, a history podcast presented by the New York Historical Society and hosted by David Rubenstein. Join us as he deftly explores the rich and complex history of the United States with some of the nation's foremost historians and creative thinkers, because history matters. We're in conversation today with Daniel Weiss, who is the President and Chief Executive Officer of the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York. And uh, we're going to talk to him about his new book, In That Time, Michael O'Donnell and the Tragic Era of Vietnam. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you, David. It's a real pleasure to be with you. Michael O'Donnell is somebody that you've heard about. How? How did you hear about him? Some years ago, I found myself looking through Harold Evans's book called The American Century. It's a big coffee table book about the 20th century, mostly really around the politics of that period in history. And in that book, there's a section on the Vietnam War. And this was 20 years ago, I was looking at this book. And in that section, I saw on one of the margins of the Vietnam section, there was a photograph of a nice looking young man and a poem placed below the picture. And the poem I found it to be very moving. The last stanza of that poem read, and in that time when men decide and feel safe to call this war insane, don't forget those gentle heroes you left behind. And then I I, I was moved by the poem and below the poem itself, Evans wrote that at the time of the publication of his book, Michael O'Donnell, it was still missing. He had been shot down in Vietnam on on a helicopter rescue mission right after the poem was written in 1970. So I was very intrigued as to who this young man was, what his story was, and really I embarked on this project in the first instance to learn more about why he had written this poem and who he was. Okay, so you might be seen as a somewhat unusual person to write this book because you are by background an art historian. You've been the head of the Metropolitan Museum of Art for a number of years. You've also been the president of Lafayette College, the president of Haverford College. You have a distinguished academic record. Uh, but it's really in the art history area or art that you've spent most of your career. So what is it about the Vietnam War era and this particular individual that attracted you? Well, I think it was two things. First of all, I'm old enough to remember the war and young enough not to have been at risk personally of being drafted. So I remember, for instance, when I was in middle school, this was in the news all the time, and people were being drafted and the war was every day in the media. And I actually remember vividly at that age being somewhat bored by it. It just dominated the news all the time. It was something anyone of my generation grew up with. The Vietnam story was an everyday story. So years later, when I encountered this story about Michael O'Donnell, it brought me back to this period in history that I, on the one hand, had lived through and on the other hand, had not paid very much attention to. And so I was very interested in understanding more What actually happened here? But what drew me to the story even more, and as you say, David, I'm a medieval art historian. I wasn't drawn to this because I wanted to write a book about the Vietnam War. But I was really drawn to the personal story of this young man who really could have been anyone. He was one of 58,220 
Americans who were killed in Vietnam, not to mention millions of Vietnamese. And I was interested in understanding the relationship between what happened to this kid and the politics of the military and political leaders at the time. What was the relationship between what Lyndon Johnson was doing and what Michael O'Donnell was doing? And one thing led to another, and I found myself caught up in wanting to first understand the story and then tell it. So you're running the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Do you tell your colleagues, by the way, I'm working on a book on Vietnam, or you didn't want to tell them because it didn't seem like it was consistent with being the head of the Metropolitan Museum of Art? I've spent most of my career as a leader in higher education and cultural institutions. And I have always found that it's really important to stay connected to the intellectual work that gave meaning to my ambition in the first place. I became a professor of art history, not to be a college president, but because I really love teaching and doing research in the field of art history. So I found throughout my career, and it's a lot like you, David, you have uh, many things that you could do that one might call business leadership that you don't spend all your time doing. You spend time doing things that animate your interests intellectually and purposefully. I've done the same. So I, I've always had writing projects and teaching that I did. As a college president, I taught every year. And as a museum leader, I felt very strongly that this story still needed to be told. So I found time. I'd get up on Saturday mornings and I would not go play golf. I would go to my desk. I wrote this book on my own time, not as a museum leader, but it was something that was important enough to me to make the time to find that balance in my life. So let me go through what I think is the premise of the book, that a person who is an everyman, an average person who goes into the war, becomes a helicopter pilot, and despite the fact that he isn't thought to be an intellectual giant, he writes poetry that really captures the essence and heartbreak of the Vietnam War. Is that a fair summary? Yeah, I'd say he was a talented guy. I wouldn't say he was brilliant in that sense for sure, but he, he showed promise before the war as a songwriter, but he was like a lot of kids of his generation. He wasn't particularly interested in college. He wasn't a particularly good student but he was very caught up in the folk music scene, for example. Prior to the war, he and his friend Marcus Sullivan became a duo and they were performing in clubs throughout the, the Midwest and in Chicago. He made an album. He was on his way to something like a career in folk music. When he got to Vietnam, and this happened to lots of soldiers, there was something almost inexorably difficult about understanding and appreciating the experience of being a soldier in that war that led them to poetry. And I make the comparison in the book to the First World War, where we see so many of the British poets who come out of that war were drawn to it in large part because of something about that experience. So O'Donnell wouldn't have described himself primarily as a poet till he was confronted on a day-to-day -day basis with what it meant to be in the war in Vietnam. So let's talk about how he got to Vietnam. He is a writer, maybe, but he's really a songwriter and really a, a performer. Was he drafted into the war? No, he wasn't. He was surrounded by friends who were being drafted. So he was trundling along in college, not doing well. He had some grades that suggested he wasn't on a path to have a successful academic year. And he realized as he was watching the rest of his friends getting drafted, that maybe what he should do is enlist in the army because if he enlists in the army, he can control his own experience rather than being drafted. And he had this idea that he's gonna become a helicopter pilot because that's a useful skill anyway. And by the way, the amount of time it takes to learn to be a helicopter pilot is so long that by the time he's got his certification, the war will be over. Of course, all of those premises were incorrect, but that was the basis around which he made that decision. And right after he decided to enlist, his best friend and musical partner got drafted anyway. 
So he was somewhat fatalistic. He wrote to his sister at the time, I enlisted because they were going to get me anyway. And at least this way I could control my own destiny. Did he come from a middle-class family or blue-collar family? What did his parents do? His father was in the insurance business, and they had, an, I would say, an upper-middle-class life in uh, Shorewood, Wisconsin. And he grew up in a very nice neighborhood. He went to a nice high school. He was a high school athlete. He lived a kind of American dream of privilege and access to opportunity and education. He just wasn't particularly serious about a lot of that, but he came from very comfortable circumstances. So he enlists as an officer and he wants to be a, a helicopter pilot. What year was that and how long did it take before he actually became a helicopter pilot? Well, if we work backwards, he went to Vietnam in October of 1969. He had his pilot's license and he was ready to go as a pilot about a year before that time. And then his date of deployment when he was going to be sent to Vietnam kept getting delayed. So he was he enlisted in 1966. And by 1968, he was ready to go to Vietnam. And by 1969, he did go to Vietnam. So he went to Vietnam. And for those who may not be familiar with that war, very often helicopter pilots were being used to ferry uh, soldiers out of harm's way to some extent. And was that what his job was, was to pick up soldiers who were being ambushed or being attacked? And this was the best way to extricate them, to get them through a helicopter? Yes. He deliberately chose when he was getting trained to fly the Huey helicopter, which was called a slick, because it was primarily a transport helicopter to bring people into battle and out of battle to rescue injured people. It was not a gunship. And as far as we know, throughout his time in Vietnam, he never fired a shot. That wasn't what he was doing. I mean, imagine what this life was like. Every day he would get up at his base, which was relatively safe behind the lines. He'd have a hot shower and breakfast, and then he would get on his helicopter and fly into the war where the casualty rates for helicopter pilots were among the highest in the war. He'd watch all of this death and dying. He'd place his own life at risk every day. Then he'd come home at the end of the day, have a shower and have dinner and have a drink, and then think about that and do the same thing the next day, every day. So that was what his life was like, but he actually never fired a shot himself. One of the reasons that it was a very dangerous position is that when you're flying those helicopters, and you're picking up soldiers or you're dropping them off, you're hovering for a while and you're kind of a stationary target almost for the enemy. In other words, you're not really moving fast at that time when you're dropping people off or picking them up. And therefore, it's not that difficult to shoot down some of these helicopters. Is that fair? Yeah, that's exactly right. And that's ultimately how he was killed, that the most vulnerable thing imaginable is take a helicopter down to ground level where it is fully exposed to enemy fire and you have to sit still waiting for your colleagues to arrive, you're an easy target. And so when he was trying to rescue his colleagues the day he died, that's exactly what happened. And he had to wait on the ground for four minutes while he was taking on enemy fire. He actually was able to withstand that. He got all of the guys on the helicopter and he was able to leave the ground and begin to escape the scene before eventually he was shot down by a missile. So the, the helicopter was shot down. Were other soldiers on that helicopter as well? Yes, the core crew of a helicopter was four. There was to be a pilot, a co-pilot, and then two door gunners who also helped doing rescues, getting people off and on the helicopter. So Michael's crew of four, himself and the three others, they actually went in by themselves to rescue a group of commandos being chased by the enemy in Cambodia. And he had to do this by himself because there was no one else around at the time. Normally you would have a handful of helicopters working together to protect each other and shoot at the enemy while one helicopter is on the ground 
at greatest risk. But because there were no other helicopters around, he did this himself. So they went to ground level and they radio signaled the guys on the ground, of which there were nine. And the nine guys came running out of the jungle waiting for them and jumped on the helicopter and they left the ground. So the, the helicopter was almost overloaded at the time he took them on with 12 or 13 soldiers when it was shot down. And did all of the soldiers die? Yeah. So, of course, we don't know exactly how quickly they died. This is part of the terrible tragedy of these kinds of incidents. The helicopter was about 200 feet above the ground. And O'Donnell, he, he thought he had safely cleared the area and he was about to start flying away. The helicopter was ascending from the ground and he radioed to his colleagues who had just arrived in other helicopters on the scene. It's a very cinematic moment, as you can imagine. He's on the ground by himself. The other helicopters, the American helicopters, are in the distance coming to the place to be helpful. But by the time they get there, they're just watching because he's already done. He's at about 200 feet above ground. And he radioed to his colleagues, I've got them all, I'm coming out. And he begins to fly forward to begin to get speed so he could accelerate away from the site. And as he was accelerating, a missile came from the hillside just next to where they were. And it hit the helicopter. And the helicopter continued flying forward for another 100 yards or so. And then it fell into the jungle in a big burning mass. But nobody knows exactly what happened because no one saw what happened to the helicopter as it dropped below the tree line. And as a result, the family was only told that his helicopter was missing and they have no idea what happened to anybody. But presumably in retrospect, and based on the fact that we have since found the site and excavated it, they probably all died right away. But we didn't know that then. So um, very often in that war, because of the difficulties of knowing what happened in the jungle, people were listed as MIAs, missing in action. How long was he listed as missing in action before they actually came to the conclusion that he had been killed? Well, he was listed technically as missing in action only for about eight years. So the way this works, it's a fascinating part of the story of O'Donnell and so many others. When you become listed as missing in action, the army puts you into a, a program where there are representatives of the army who keep track of your story and the evidence around your circumstances. And they write to the family several times a year, all year long, every year, updating the family on what progress or lack of progress had been made. So for eight years, several times a year, the O'Donnell family would get a letter from the army or a visit from somebody saying, we received a report from an anonymous source of a Caucasian male identified on the streets of Hanoi resembling your, your son. We're doing an investigation. And then two months later, they'd come back and say, we're sorry, it was a false lead. That kind of thing went on for eight years. And by that time, the family was convinced that Michael had died. Based on the evidence they had heard, the other soldiers who had witnessed the event, they couldn't take that any longer. So they requested of the president of the United States that his status be changed from MIA to killed in action. It meant that the family would no longer get income from the army, but they didn't care about that. They just wanted closure. So anyway, eight years later, Jimmy Carter granted them status that he was killed in action. But it was 20 years after that, in 1999, when the crash site was actually found in Cambodia, deep in the jungles of Cambodia. And they conducted an investigation to determine if there were human remains, and if so, whose remains they were. And that process is outlined in the book as well. So his remains were found? Yes, they were found, along with most of the other soldiers on the plane. 
they were found through this incredible story of forensic archaeology, where these anthropologists go into the jungle. And to identify the remains of a soldier who has been missing in the jungle for 30 years can be done with a tooth or a bone fragment. We're not talking about human remains in the sense of a, a, a body that's found, but only tiny fragments of the remains of a person. And so when the fragments were found and he was identified as Michael O'Donnell, was his family still alive? His sister was. Michael had one sister and two parents. His father died never knowing anything about Michael's outcome. He thought they just didn't know. And his mother, sadly, had Alzheimer's. And by the time they got evidence about Michael's death, she was already unreachable mentally. She was gone. So the sister was the only one who knew. When the remains were, or what was left, uh, were identified, was there any burial ceremony ever? Yes. And another one of the great ironies of being a missing in action in the army. Michael's family and his friends spent 29 years waiting for information about what happened to their friend. And then when they finally, in 1999, they told the family, we have found the crash site. We're going to do an investigation. And then we're going to have to do a DNA analysis. And they needed a sample from Michael's sister. And they said that will take about three years to determine whether or not the remains include those of your brother. Once they did that, three years later, or two years later, and they made the positive identification, then they called Michael's sister and they said, we're going to bury him with full ceremonial honors in Arlington next week. So sadly, she came for this funeral, but his best friend was unable to come. Other people couldn't drop everything and get to the cemetery. So he was buried in Arlington in August of 2001, about two weeks before 9-11. So let's go to his poetry. How many uh, poems did you find or are extant? And how did you find them? And how did people uh, receive them? Did they get them in letters from him or did he leave them behind? A little bit of everything. We know from all the evidence we have now that he wrote about 25 poems from the time he was in the war. And those survived in various places. The, the most famous poem, the one that I cited at the beginning of our discussion, that is most well-known, he sent that in a letter to his best friend and his musical partner, Marcus Sullivan. So Marcus had a copy of that. And when Michael died, Marcus shared that letter with a larger audience, including CBS News and various other people did stories about it. But the other way this poetry was shared, after he was killed or missing in action, his fellow soldiers had to clear out his bunk packed up his footlocker and sent it back to his next of kin. And as they were going through his footlocker, they found an old Smith Perona typewriter. He had a little portable typewriter with him. And a, a little booklet called Letters from Play Coup, which was a collection of Michael's poems. They knew he was a poet, but they had never seen any of his poems. So these guys, many of them, they didn't know. They just copied these poems and started sending them around. So there were bootleg copies of his poetry all over the army within a few years. And then his poetry got famous. And frankly, the poem I started with is one of the most famous poems from the Vietnam War era today. And the essence of these poems is that he is a young man recognizing probably that what he's doing is senseless in some ways and not really uh, contributing to humanity all that much. But he's kind of stuck in this environment where he's in a war that he doesn't think can be won and doesn't think is probably justified. Is that fair? Yeah, that's exactly right. He's trying to, in some way, creatively, I guess, to come to terms with his circumstances. And it's clear, as you say, that within a few months of being in Vietnam, he thought the odds were almost impossible that he would survive the war. 
So his poetry is very fatalistic about what it means to wake up every day, knowing that today could be my last. And if it's not going to be today, it could be tomorrow or the next day. And at the same time, trying to find a reason to go on in his life, knowing at the same time that like most of these soldiers, they felt this terrible sense of betrayal by our own government because they knew, everyone knew, the war was unwinnable, that what they were doing was inachievable, yet they were there and they were dying. And they, they were having to come to terms with the idea that they were sent there by people who really were okay with that outcome, that they would be killed in the war for no good purpose. So during the time of that war, and obviously I lived through it as you did, but I'm a little older than you, so I was probably more connected to what was going on at the time, the, the country was divided. Many people thought that the domino theory would be true, and that was that if Vietnam became communist and Laos and Cambodia and all of Southeast Asia become communist and we would lose Asia. There were other people who thought it was a senseless war and the domino theory was meaningless. At that time, the country was, I won't say split down the middle, but it was certainly split. Have you found anybody today who really defends the Vietnam War as a good exercise in use of our military power or the 58,000 men and women who were killed there as a good thing to have done? Yeah, I think you outlined really well what our country was dealing with in the 1960s. And you're absolutely right that at the beginning of the Vietnam War, most Americans thought, I don't really understand this conflict, but I trust my government. And when we're asked to go to war, we go to war. And by the end of the war, nobody was saying that. They recognized that there had been terrible strategic mistakes and then deception and really a betrayal in, in not sharing with the American people that the strategy wasn't working. So I think the two, two parts to your question that I'll answer. The first is, I think the major moment in the history of the war as betrayal took place in 1995, years later, when Robert McNamara published his own memoir about the war called In Retrospect, when he admitted, acknowledged publicly that they recognized then the war was unwinnable, yet they went ahead and did the best they could to try to win it because they didn't think there was a way out of it otherwise. He wrote this book and then he went on a book tour where he traveled around the country and answered questions and faced incredible hostility from everyone. Because by that time, when the people who were setting the policy were themselves acknowledging it was a lie, it was very difficult to defend that policy. I think what we've learned from Vietnam, if there's one great lesson, it's that political leaders and military leaders will inevitably make mistakes. Sometimes they'll make them on the basis of personal ambition and deceit, and sometimes they'll make them because they're uninformed. But that's a whole different thing from blaming the soldiers who are going there to do the work they've been asked to do. And in Vietnam, as you well remember, I'm sure, David, many of the soldiers who went to Vietnam were being blamed for the policies that they were drafted to enact. And in the era of Afghanistan and Iraq, we don't make that mistake. Whatever people think about the rightness of those wars post 9-11, we never held soldiers accountable for that. We celebrated them and appreciated their bravery. That was one of the great outcomes of Vietnam that people learned the difference. Well, uh, during the time I served in the White House, there was an effort to build a Vietnam War Memorial, and it was bitterly opposed by people, thinking there was no reason to honor the soldiers who had gone there, and that it was a really a, a, a not a wise thing to do. Obviously, we built it and it became a famous memorial, but there was a lot of opposition to it at the time. And of course, Ken Burns had a 10-part series on the Vietnam War uh, in one of his PBS uh, programs, and I've interviewed him. He would say that he uncovered documents that made it clear that the U.S. government knew relatively early on that the war was not militarily winnable. 
yet the government officials were not willing to say that publicly. So one of the tragedies of that era. Yeah. All right. So now you have written this book. Are you going to write another book? Well, this book is coming out in paperback in the spring. It was published just at the moment of COVID. So it's going to have a new life this year with the reissue in paperback. And I have a new book coming out next month called Why the Museum Matters, which is a book really about why museums are important in our society and what they represent. Well, thank you very much for your conversation today and uh, talking about your book in that time, Michael O'Donnell and the Tragic Era of Vietnam. Thank you very much, Daniel Weiss. Thank you so much, David. On behalf of the New York Historical Society, thank you for joining us for another episode of For the Ages, a history podcast hosted by David Rubenstein. We hope you enjoyed it and come back for more. Thanks for your support. You can share your thoughts at public.programs at nyhistory.org.